Welcome to this series of podcasts for FinTech CTO Club, a community where tech executives learn and share best leadership practices. Here, Vasil Soloschuk, CEO of Insart and the author of FinTech CTO Club, will discuss burning topics on the FinTech product development arena with the technical leaders in the industry. Today it's episode 7 of our podcast. We are going to talk with Anthony DeSanti, CTO at Shift Forex, which builds high-performance trading systems with a focus on cryptocurrency exchange technology. Could you please introduce yourself and uh, what is your current role? Of course. So I'm the CTO of Shift Markets. My background is in financial technology from the very beginning of my career. I started in the Forex industry, that's the currency trading industry, and I had a specific focus on digital analytics and the tracking scripts that record the activity online and offline across the advertising through to the acquisition process, which for financial services companies can be quite lengthy, and then through to the interactions with the product and realizing the full lifetime value of a customer within financial services takes a significant period of time and can be complex. So I was building that end-to-end solution for one of the major Forex brokers. And over time, I've moved into more and more heavy tech focus, uh, ultimately leading to my role here at Shift, where I lead the development team and the product team for the design, development, and delivery of the product all the way through to the production trading environment and starting with the feedback from the customer and the design process of uh, the different products that we offer. Okay, that sounds really great. Uh, So uh, could you tell us please, uh, at what stage uh, uh, is your uh, product at the moment? So what what is this briefly, what you provide briefly, and what is the stage of the product and and of the company at the moment? Definitely. So uh, here at Shift, we have a couple different products. We started as a consulting company, helping large players in the FX space and certain types of brokerages adopt best practices that we had seen uh, from earlier in our career, myself and my two partners. But over time, we found that the most scalable way to grow the business was to build products that we could sell repeatedly to multiple customers. So now we have white label solutions that can be used to start a business from the ground up for starting brokerages of a variety of different types, mostly trading spot products in FX, commodities, and equity markets. And more recently, our main focus has been, although it's not yet the bulk of our revenue, but it is our fastest growing segment, cryptocurrency exchange software. So our products are relatively mature. I mean, as mature as a cryptocurrency exchange product can be at this point in time, it's all a relatively new industry, but I'd say we're about two and a half years into having a product that is live and in the marketplace for the cryptocurrency exchange and the other brokerage products we're maybe five or six years into. And uh, the company itself has maybe 60 employees or so. And in terms of customers, we've started over 200 brokerages and uh, 75 to 100 exchanges. 
So, you know, we definitely have live customers using the product every day and it's being stress tested with the realities of production use. Okay, okay, thank you. So, um, as a technology leader of the company, as CTO, so what are the main challenges for yourself uh, at the moment? Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple different challenges that we face as an organization, both on the technology side and outside of technology, but almost everything at this company has some impact on the tech team. So, as I mentioned earlier, I do lead the production support team as well. That's more of a trading support focus here at Shift, but the trading is built on top of our technology. So it's also just production support for the technical environment. Um, so one of the challenges is that crypto is a 24 hour market, just like FX is, except it also runs through the weekends. So making sure that we have the remote team across all time zones that's trained highly enough that a client can you know, come into, we offer live support on Skype or Slack, which is a little unusual for most companies in general. Being a high-touch consulting company at our heart, that's how we've approached all of our product delivery. And that means that we need someone well-trained who can receive a notice that there's a trading emergency, there's a problem, and they know how to diagnose, debug, and hopefully resolve the issue immediately or escalate the issue if it's beyond their capabilities, which is rarely the case, but does happen. So building that remote team for the production support was good practice for what we've now done across our general development team. We have a growing team in Ukraine, which is exciting for us. It's an area that we found very strong development expertise, especially within the fintech vertical, but in general, uh, both across the front end and back end systems. And there also seems to be a strong experience with the concepts of financial markets themselves, which I found hiring people from outside of financial markets and outside of fintech, one of the major challenges is understanding the requirements for the projects that we we task them with. Um, you know, even understanding the basic concepts of, of course, the lowest price that someone's willing to sell at should always be higher than the highest price someone's willing to buy at. Otherwise, a trade should have occurred. So obviously there's an error in your code if you have an order book with an inverted spread. Um, now these concepts can be very difficult for someone just entering the market to understand and often results in lost time and development effort. So growing this remote team in here in New York as well as across the US, we have Seattle and Maine and some other US-based employees. And then across Europe with a primary focus on Ukraine, we just established a development lead in Ukraine to continue building out that team. But we also have developers in Poland and Malta, and uh, yeah, we're just expanding across the globe. Um, building the production support team was good practice for that, but that's been one of the main challenges. How do we keep this remote team productive and make sure that we have the leadership infrastructure because the development team has been growing rapidly along with the rest of the company and we didn't necessarily have the right processes and tools in place. Of course, we're using things like Git, which are basic standard ways that people develop, but the internal processes that um, you know, design goals go from customer feedback through to the product team and product design into the development backlog and ultimately need to be QA'd and 
uh, enter our CD process to be deployed into the product. Um, that, that took some time to come together, but we're very happy with where we are today. Okay, that's great. Thank you. So let's, uh, let's uh, discuss a little bit more details uh, about the team structure. And so what's, what's your approach uh, to structure the engineering team uh, whether they are like cross-functional teams, do you have like several teams across different product areas or not? And uh, do you have like front-end, back-end developers or full-stack concept? And uh, also what about QA? What about requirements definition by product managers? So please uh, explain us what's your approach about structuring the team and then structuring the process. Yeah, absolutely. So. I guess starting at the beginning of the process with how we structure the tasks and they start, you know, getting their way into the development process. We have a product team who's focused on making sure that we're building the right things and that we're understanding the customer pain points and building solutions to them. So that team is focused on discussing with the customers and building out tasks that are very clear for the developers to work on. We use Asana internally as our task management software. Uh, we find it's a bit lighter weight than larger systems like Jira, but have the complexity that we need to you know, get the job done without getting in the way. And that's always an evolving process. We'll see if that's what we're using a year from now, but we've been happy with it so far. And we do have a couple different pro projects within Asana that represent different development skill sets. So there's a mobile project, there's a crypto project, there's a Forex project. Um, so we've, we refer to all of the traditional brokerage software under the heading of Forex, because that's where we came from originally, although now it's a generalized brokerage software. Um, so we do have some segmented skill sets in terms of domain expertise, as well as technical ability in terms of like front end back end stuff. Um, we have divided the tasks into the different domain expertise because as I mentioned earlier, we do like to have the person working on a task very familiar with the problem space that they're working in. It results in a better end product generally. And we rely on the developers to understand whether a task fits their particular technical skill set or not. So we'll have a unified backlog for the crypto exchange software, for example. Some of those tasks are going to be front-end tasks. Some of them are going to be building back-end services. We use a service-oriented architecture. So often a developer can pick up a service template and build the service from the ground up or if it's a service that already exists, ideally one of the developers who's already worked on that service, or if it's the case of a pluggable backend for a templated service that conforms to a particular interface, like let's say we're integrating different payment service providers and someone's worked on one PSP integration before, they could hop on another PSP integration fairly easily, and even one that someone else built but if they're very familiar with our single sign-on software and the authentication workflows and have never touched one of the PSP integrations, it might be better let someone else pick that up and hop on the task that they feel they're better suited for. So we prioritize that backlog and we allow the developers to pick what they feel they're best suited for. And you know, please try to take from the top of the backlog if you can, those are the most important tasks. But 
this sort of informal structure seems to have worked very well for us. It results in you know, devs jumping on tasks that they're happy to work on and they feel qualified to work on and they deliver great product. And occasionally a task slips through the cracks, stays at the top of the backlog for a couple of days, no one's picking it up. And then, you know, we cover that on the daily standup. So another way that we keep the whole team in sync and productive is once a day and Finding the time that works for everyone has been a little challenging, but once a day we all hop on one big call together and we run through any blockers that anyone's encountering and just a quick like, what'd you work on yesterday? What are you working on today? And yeah, that's this process has been working well for us so far. Okay, okay, that's cool. And how big is the engineering team at the moment? So I think our latest count is probably about 21 developers somewhere in that range or 21 engineers i guess i would say uh, not everyone might be technically referred to as a developer we have some qa specialists and uh, some members of the team that focus on cloud engineering which sometimes has tasks that we might more traditionally refer to as development you know scripting tasks but a lot of it is making sure that we're an AWS shop, making sure that the VPCs are properly configured and that we have the right gateways to connect different VPCs together and that the right IAM roles have been assigned to Fargate services that allow them to access other resources that they need access to and that the parameter store is storing the secrets appropriately so that only production instances can access production creds, things like that, which you know, they're definitely critical tasks for delivering software in today's cloud-based environment, but might not be what we traditionally think of as sitting down in front of your IDE and coding. Okay, thank you. And uh, so actually you mentioned that domain expertise is uh, very important and uh, this is this was a, a very good example. Um, and, uh, you know, in general, uh, do you have any formal practices for knowledge sharing uh, among the engineers specifically? Because, for example, uh, we uh, we have found it uh, very efficient to train engineers, you know, in various aspects of finance, in wealth management, and payment solutions, so they can understand their requirements, uh, you know, faster, deeper, and uh, more clearly. Without and then proceeding with the implementation with lesser work because they uh, can understand everything, you know, or most of the things and concepts uh, initially uh, in the first place. So do you have any formal knowledge sharing uh, approach, process or something or training process uh, about the finance and um, more specific things in, in your company? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm happy you highlighted this because it's something that we found very effective since we've introduced it and not just within the development team, but across the company as a whole. So we try to have maybe monthly trainings that are company wide where we cover a critical topic. So uh, examples of past topics for our company have been blockchain technology and we've done like a 101 201 a couple trainings for more advanced understanding of how blockchain works which for newer members of the team can be very important and it's not just the development team that benefits from that also the sales team who is explaining some relatively complex topics of how our software interacts with the blockchain and how the funds are kept secure and what the flow of funds look like 
um, across other areas of finance as well. You know, how does an order book work? What is the concept of the bid ask and the spread? And how does this work across different markets where there's a dedicated maker taker, like you might see in the FX market and even under certain models for equities trading versus an exchange product, which is what we do for the crypto. So we do those larger trainings for the whole company, but we also do dedicated developer trainings and these usually follow our stand up. So if we're going to do one of these, which they happen maybe around once a month, but they really happen on an as needed basis. So when we launched our single sign on technology, for example, this is something that every service that is client facing is going to need to integrate with ultimately. So Everyone needs to understand how they're going to work with single sign-on. We use Cognito and AWS to power it, and we also support federated login through Google or Facebook or anything that Cognito supports, including OpenID, I believe, and uh, we're working on an OAuth 2-based flow as well. So you know, this is something that everyone needs to learn. So we try to keep the stand-up on the day that we're doing the training abbreviated as much as possible. We always try and keep it quick, but if something pops up, we're not afraid to dig in and have a group discussion of how do we as a team want to cover this particular challenge that's been raised here on the stand-up. But if we're doing a training that day, we try to avoid those. So we can just get through the stand-up and get over to the training, and then someone's responsible for leading it, usually the developer that led the development effort on whatever's being demoed and discussed. And then he'll walk through, or she will walk through the flow of how that particular implementation works, usually jump into the code to show some of the intricacies and challenges that they faced while building this, and then open for general discussion around uh, whatever the software is addressing. So in the case of single sign-on, you know, we, we might have certain questions about how our service is going to authenticate that need to be able to act on behalf of other users. Do we want them to be able to masquerade as the user and you know, uh, interface with the service as if they were that user or do they want a higher level of privilege? And if we do have different levels of privilege, how are we going to control the scope over which users that uh, more privileged service can act, um, and things like that. So we find that knowledge sharing is very, very important for keeping everyone productive and, and moving their knowledge forward, and it's a large application. So especially as new members join the team, we want to make sure that they're seeing all the latest and greatest that we're developing, and oftentimes the newer things are deprecating older things anyway. So the trainings keep everyone up to speed and to a certain degree onboard customer, onboard new developers as well, because the things that are launching are sometimes all you need to know. You don't need to know our old sign-on solution that was fractured across multiple underlying systems. Now it's just the single sign-on. As long as you know that, you know authentication. Okay, and Dennis, so thank you for this answer. It's very, very, very interesting. And uh, so the next topic I would like to discuss is... Um, know how how you pick technologies and how you pick the right architecture for your solution so you know uh, when you start building a, um, a fintech product from scratch so probably you would like to be faster to the market and uh, select uh, some uh, technologies with uh, to, uh, to develop uh, you know to rapidly develop the solution maybe having some simple or simplistic monolithic architecture then going forward Maybe you will uh, do. Uh, maybe you will split to microservices, adding more complex technologies. 
and also having probably the technical depth and you need to fight with that uh, and uh, maybe add uh, and maybe remove outdated technologies and uh, add more up-to-date uh, frameworks. So actually, what's what's your approach to pick the right technologies, right architecture for when you build from scratch, and then uh, moving forward, uh, how you how you keep your software architecture and technology stack update up to date, uh, you know, uh, able to eliminate technical depths and also uh, and also uh, making your system scalable for you know for further development. So that's uh, that's a very good question. There are a couple different components to it. Yes. <clears throat> the you know, the selection of the individual technologies versus the architecture I view as two very different areas, um, both critically important. But um, you, know, you can usually complete any implement any sort of architecture you want to implement using your technologies of choice. Um, so. I guess we'll start with the architecture. Generally, we are focused on having the most flexible system in the marketplace. We found that financial services companies are rarely looking to do exactly what their competitors are doing. They often have unique regional or uh, you know, use case specific workflows that they need to implement. Our clients are globally based and let's say someone's coming from India, they're going to have certain payment methods that they need to support, certain banking integrations that they need that are completely different than what someone in Brazil might need. Might be the same underlying use case, you know, a cryptocurrency exchange or a Forex broker or an equities broker, but the specifics of how customers are going to interact with their software is going to be materially different. They're going to be using entirely different services, uh, you know, external vendors in order to get the nuts and bolts of moving money around done. So we try to focus on having a very pluggable architecture. So we'll define a consistent interface that we need into all vendors that are going to provide a particular service and then we'll build a wrapper service around their API that transforms their API into the interface that we need all of that type of vendor to comply with. And then we'll have a service that acts as an indirection layer in front of each of those vendors that is responsible for most of the heavy lifting. So let's say we're talking about a custodial solution for cryptocurrency we need to be able to get a deposit address we need to be able to process a withdrawal we need to be notified when funds have hit an account and in the context of blockchain there's concepts of confirmations and how confident you are that the money really has gone through so you know, these are things that we can handle in the indirection layer we can track the mapping between addresses that have been generated with users on a particular clients exchange and uh, track the status of different transactions all within the indirection layer allowing the pluggable services that sit behind it to be as thin as possible they're really focused on just generating an address or providing the status of a particular transaction and doing nothing in addition to that. So as much as possible, we try to have stateless, uh, stateless implementations for those 
vendor-specific services and any state that needs to be managed, we want centralized within a service that will get higher levels of code review, will often have a more experienced developer assigned to them. Um, you know, it allows us to have a service-oriented architecture without encountering many of the maintenance challenges that an SOA brings with it. If you have state fractured across many different services, updating one service often requires updating a host of other services that were expecting the shape of the state to conform to a particular interface that they were expecting that it no longer does. Um, so that's one of the main considerations that we're making in terms of our overall architecture itself. Um, we have our single sign-on solution, which handles authentication. It makes sure that across different user pools, we have uh, mappings for everything. So, you know, if someone signs on through a federated Google login, we need to make sure that that Google user is mapped to a user on the exchange and a user within the custodial solution and potentially a user within the KYC solution. Um, and there's a lot of just user management stuff. So it deals with all that. And then when the person signed in and they're ready to start trading, we try to create as low latency as possible of a connection to the order management system, which is what they have to go through to reach the matching engine where the trade execution occurs. So we have them connect directly to the OMS service using uh, JWT for authentication that they receive from the SSO service. And then from there, we have uh, pluggable services that really depend on the client's use case. And you know, I know that's pretty general in terms of what our architecture looks like. You couldn't really draw a diagram from what I just said, but yes. it does speak to just the wide range of use cases we need to cover for our clients. And I'm happy to dig into any of those further if, if we want to go there. Um, but the other side of your question was about the technologies that we select. Mm -hmm. yes. So we're very flexible in allowing our developers to use the technologies that they feel most comfortable with, with a specific focus on moving towards serverless implementations. So you know, if someone's comfortable using MySQL, maybe they can just use Aurora serverless instead. So now it's a MySQL compatible relational database, everything they're used to from MySQL, but instead of us maintaining dedicated MySQL servers for each client that signs up and having to provision additional uh, MySQL database servers, which then of course need the databases themselves configured on them, um, we can use Aurora serverless. All the server stuff is gone, we just have to provision a new database and we're done. Um, and then we can leverage IAM for uh, you know, the rights management for who has access, which services have access to the data stores that they need access to. So we're always pushing everyone towards serverless, but if someone comes in with a strong Python background, they're gonna be writing services in Python. If someone comes in with a strong .NET background, they're gonna be writing stuff in .NET. And we love when developers pick up new languages and are looking to get cross-trained on other technologies that are in use across the team. But we try to make sure that people are working to their strengths. Those strengths are gonna result in us getting the highest quality software with the least defects and the fastest development time possible. Although we will ask developers using particularly outdated technologies to upgrade, you know, one thing that might be a little controversial is we try to move developers from PHP to 
uh, more modern functional language, whether that's Python or Node.js, which obviously a lot of people might have their complaints with JavaScript, but given that we have a lot of front-end developers who move towards full stack, we end up with a lot of Node services because they already have that JavaScript strength. And in fact, they might have already written the service that they're about to write as a front-end heavy implementation that now is being extracted out to a service so that the front-end can be as light and thin as possible. And all of that logic that used to be running on the end user's computer can now run in the cloud, making the user interface load faster, run smoother, and be less memory intensive. So we have a, a very mixed environment of all types of different languages running, but in terms of the deployments, we deploy into S3 for our websites. So the websites go into S3 with a website endpoint, static website endpoint in front of them. That means we have no ability to run server-side processing as part of the web server delivery. So there's no PHP running, no... Uh, you know, no sort of CGI gateway there at all. We compile down to static CSS, HTML, and JavaScript, deploy that up to S3. There's a website endpoint saying in front of it, usually with CloudFront in front of that. So, you know, it's entirely serverless. It's cached across edge nodes around the world. It loads very fast. And there's no vulnerability, there's no possibility for vulnerability unless someone manages to you know, defeat the security model around CloudFront, then S3's website hosting solution, and then the underlying S3 technology. So you know, we feel very confident that that's secure and scalable. We're not going to run into scaling challenges with that architecture ever in terms of delivering the website code. Uh, but that's just one component, right? Then we have all the heavy lifting of running the exchange or running the brokerage. And that stuff, we move as much serverless as possible. So we use Fargate for container-based deployments that we can allocate resources to without needing to worry about the instances too heavily. We do have a couple things that are just deployed to ECS without Fargate on top of them, um, specifically Windows-based software that's using the full .NET uh, CLR, where we haven't yet migrated to .NET Core, and we, I believe we can deploy that stuff to Fargate eventually, but we'll probably just migrate to .NET Core and deploy to Fargate. We don't have templates yet for deploying full .NET stacks into Fargate. Um, and then occasionally we have to deal with licensing issues, and that can be the most annoying challenge for moving towards serverless. If you're licensed for an individual server, you really can't deploy into a serverless architecture without running up to challenges with the definition of how that license works. So for those, we do occasionally have to use those special Snowflake servers that sit on an EC2 instance and represent a particular licensed product. But to whatever degree possible, we're using EC2 instance backed with EBS volumes that have really been tuned often when you're writing a trading system, the disk performance is something people don't think about that becomes a major challenge in the cloud. So making sure that you're selecting the right types of disks for the load that you need to support, and also tuning the load so that it's compatible with the type of disks available. So you know, if you're using the, I think it's called HD1 instance uh, EBS volume types, which are very effective for sequential IO, but break down terribly if you start doing random IO. Now you have to make sure that you're able to delegate the right disk load to the right EBS volumes. But 
working on it for the last couple of years, you know, we're very happy with where we've reached, even deploying traditional software that we did not write ourselves into cloud-based environments. Okay, yeah, so thank you for this uh, solid explanation. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, isn't it uh, hard to support uh, many different technologies used to write different services? So certainly, uh, you know, you can, uh, you, you should use the strengths of your developers. And if you have developers, you know, with a different uh, technology background, uh, but uh, isn't it hard to support the services, for example, if the developer leaves uh, the team and you need to replace him or her and you can't find with the right technology stack? Because when you use this, the same technology stack across all the developers, you know, then uh, it is easier to uh, replace people. So what's, uh, what's your experience here? You're absolutely right. That's definitely a challenge we face, and there's no easy answer there. Those are the two schools of thought. You know, have a polyglot approach and deal with difficult to replace and maintain services from time to time, or standardize everything and deal with the challenges in sourcing the right talent you're looking for, or the training challenges of getting qualified developers up to speed, working with technologies that are a little newer to them. And there's definitely benefits to both. Um, what we found to be very helpful is to empower the developers to have the autonomy that they would need to review each other's code, to authorize code to be deployed into production, um, to try not to bottleneck everything through senior managers, because those managers might not be the best equipped to really review that code and might not be as familiar with that technology as other developers on the team. And that's been very effective for allowing us to move quickly. You know, if every piece of code had to go through me before it would reach production, you know, this call right here would mean that code's not hidden prod when it needs to get out. Um, so you know, that's been very helpful for us. And now as we're growing internationally and we start to have these 24-hour development cycles, you know, we've needed to build a little more structure into a team. We've always used a very flat organizational structure, but we've just appointed a dev lead out of Ukraine that's acting as the European dev lead now. So he's unblocking people while I'm sleeping, before I'm in the office. He's delegating tasks. <clears throat> You know, and he's just making sure that the code quality is maintained where it needs to be and using the same principles that we use ourselves. He's not reviewing every piece of code. There's a lot of peer review happening. But when we do lose a developer who happened to have a unique skill set, that is the biggest challenge. And there's no magic bullet for that. Um, one solution is someone learns the tech. Uh, usually the languages that we're using, we've got some backstops on everything. We've got a couple guys that know Python. Uh, Node is very widespread throughout the team because the front-end development team is all very comfortable with JavaScript, JavaScript and they all like to become full-stack developers. So you know, the, if they start as front-end, they end up becoming full-stack within a short time being here. And then we've got the .NET guys who that's probably the biggest reach for developers that aren't coming from you know, your more typical statically typed, uh, you know, the Java.NET to the world. 
Um, but we've got some backstops there, a couple guys that are trained in that stuff. And then, of course, there's always myself and some of the other dev managers we have who have a wide breadth of experience across different languages and feel comfortable jumping in on any project. So, you know, worse comes to worse. Someone's out, someone's on vacation, there's a service no one else has worked on and no one has the particular skills, then I'll just jump on it. And, you know, you give me five, six hours, I'm going to be able to get through whatever we got to get through. <laughs> Okay, got it, got it. Thank you. And um, so, uh, what's your experience and what's your approach regarding QA? Actually, uh, automation versus manual, like when you do automation, so you need to uh, uh, invest a fourth of your engineers into you know, building the automated QA process and framework. Uh, but you know, you will you will benefit on the later stages of this. But uh, with the manual approach, you you will uh, you will be able you know to t to test faster. But then you need to spend more more and more effort for regression testing. So how do you prioritize what should be covered first for uh, for automation? What what types of tests do you, uh, do you automate first or not? So what's what's your experience? What's your approach here? This has been a, a challenge for us. This is one of the tougher areas to, there's a lot of judgment calls that you need to make about where the right balance lies for automating testing, having testing in general versus um, getting features built and delivered. So we've taken an approach of for critical systems, we unit test. And the unit test doesn't have 100% coverage, but it's got pretty decent coverage. And you know, if something really needs to get out quickly, it might get out without automated tests attached to it. But hopefully someone loops back and adds the automated test a little later. All depends on what the pipeline looks like. Our QA process tends to get much better and much more automated during times of slow sales. And we tend to have reduced coverage for our test suite during times of rapid development and delivery when our sales pipeline is really, really heavy. Um, but in terms of what we do have, we use Travis CI for deploying our code to production uh, before the deployment script itself runs through the unit test suite. So if any of the tests fail, it's not going to allow that to deploy unless we override, but we almost never do that. Um, usually that would just be, oh, the snapshot was out of date that we're checking something against, but we know it's good, so we're just going to push because the client's freaking out. He needs this fixed. Um, but usually uh, things are going to run through the OMA test suite. That's the first test to make sure that it, gets it you know, passes all those tests. So when a PR gets created in GitHub, uh, Travis is going to pick it up. It's going to deploy it to a server. It's going to run the test suite against it. And now we have a place to go manually QA it as well. Then that task will be assigned to the product manager who created the task originally, and they'll QA it from a functional point of view. Now, ultimately, we would like to have integration tests that do the functional requirement beyond just the unit testing, but that's something that's still under development and you know, hopefully we'll have soon, but time will tell. <laughs> uh, team's growing fast. So after the product manager has developed, has QA'd that task and make sure that it looks good, he'll go ahead and mark it complete inside the inside Asana and let the dev team know that it's good to merge. Then we'll merge it into prod. It'll go through the same automated testing, but if that branch passed, it should 
pass when it merges in the dev. Sometimes that fails, it's very rare. And after that test passes, it'll go through the automated deployment into the environment based on the branch that it was merged into. So we maintain different code branches for each production environment that we need to deploy into, as well as our main development branch that everything forks off of when we first create a new production environment. And we have our QA UAT environment that has our dev branch on it as well. So basically dev finishes the task, it gets picked up and tested, if everything looks good. Uh, and as part of that testing process, it deploys into a QA uh, testing environment. The product manager tests that, makes sure everything looks good, marks it good to go. We merge it into the production branch and usually dev as well, unless it's client specific. And then it gets, uh, through our continuous deployment process, it gets deployed into the production environment. Okay, okay, got it, thank you. So do you have any kind of metrics uh, or let's say KPIs uh, to measure the uh, performance of uh, the whole engineering team as well as a particular uh, engineer and team member? So I know this is something that a lot of development teams like to use. They point all of the user stories or tasks inside of their task management software and then they look to measure the velocity of the team based on the number of points that have been completed. This is something I've never found to be particularly helpful because the points are some combination of complexity and expected time commitment. So a very simple task that just is tedious and going to take a while, like updating something across the whole code base, we're changing the way we're going to do a particular basic task. Um, that might get tasked with one or pointed with one point. It might get pointed with many points because it's going to take a lot of time. Um, those velocity measures I've just never found very helpful. We have a very intuitive understanding of whether a developer is being productive or not. We're working together every day. We're on stand-ups together every day. It's very clear when someone is, you know, has seen a drop in their productivity, and that's something that it's easy to address with a quick conversation. You know, people get burnt out. Um, maybe they need to be moved to a different project. They're just hitting a lot of roadblocks in the project they've been working on, and they need a break. They need a change of pace. Um, so we're not too worried about measuring the individual uh, developer progress. That is just obvious to us on a day-to-day -day basis. And for the team as a whole, um, yeah, we want to be moving as fast as possible. And I love data. I have a analytics background. So it's something that you know, if I could just quantify everything, that would be great. But realistically, we get done what we get done. And if the performance, if the quanti quantitative number that we were going to measure the team with went down a little, that's not good. But I don't think we're in a position where it's like, oh, well, this change we made obviously resulted in the reduced productivity, so we're going to revert the change, and then the productivity goes back up. And if that is the case, we know we were testing something. For two weeks, we were going to try. So an example that's running right now is some developers have suggested that we start putting due, da due dates on every task. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That's nice, but what happens when we start to miss due dates? We've tried this in the past when the team was smaller. And we already have all the tasks prioritized. So if you start to miss due dates now, do you jump to the lower priority task to get them done before their due date, even though other tasks are behind their due date? Or does the product management team now need to come in every day and push every due date back if one due date's been missed? Like, it just becomes very questionable what we're supposed to do with this. 
but it keeps popping up that people want to do it. So we're giving it a try and we'll see how it goes. If we don't like it, we'll stop doing it. But we don't have that quantitative measure that it might be helpful if it were really accurate. I just haven't found a good velocity measure that I find useful as a manager of a development team, whether that's here or in previous roles that I've been in. And I've been at companies that are very authoritative that we're going to be pointing everything and we're going to use these velocity measurements and other people love it and if they love it and it works for them that's great but for us it just i've never found it to be particularly helpful got it got it thank you so i have a few last questions uh so the next question is actually uh what what motivates you the most uh, in the role of cto you know what is your biggest uh let's say, patient about uh, being a technology leader? And also, what are the most uh, board tasks for you? And what, what is, uh, you know, what, what, what things are like, you know, routine things for you being a CTO, but must have to, to make as well? Oh, those are great questions. So in terms of the, I'll start with the fun one, the passion and the motivating. So I really enjoy learning new technologies and exploring the progress that our industry is making as a whole. And that's part of why we push towards serverless. I do believe in many of the benefits of uh, service-oriented architecture built on top of serverless uh, technologies. But you know there are challenges that come with it as well. When you have a complicated SOA, how do you how do you test different development forks of individual services? You can have a staging environment where you're going to individually swap out one service for testing, but then do you have a bunch of staging environments? And what if a developer wants to develop locally? Can they you know, use some sort of foreman or vagrant-based approach to get all the services up? And that's areas that we're currently exploring right now. It's been relatively simple up until the last couple months to set up a local copy of everything we have running in the cloud, especially since everything's container-based. But as the service, as the number of services grows and the dependencies on external uh, vendors and external technologies grows, it becomes more and more difficult to do that sort of local development. So that's a challenge that we're facing right now, but it's fun to face these challenges and try to identify innovative solutions to them that really move us ahead of our competitors, both in terms of our redundancy and resiliency to fault, you know, fault tolerance within our system, as well as just the speed at which we can deliver new services. Um, you know, and we've moved towards things like immutable data, reactive uh, control flows using RxJS on our front end with Redux and Redux Observable for managing API interactions and driving those state mutations. Um, and you know, it's been really fun to adopt those new technologies and to help new developers that join the team learn these new technologies. I've always found that you learn something best by helping someone else learn it. and onboarding new team members and even now watching you know people that join the team who I helped learn some of the technologies that we're using teach newer members that are working with them and watching this grow you know that's been very fulfilling for me and I've really enjoyed that and then you know we're constantly picking up new projects that require us to overcome challenges we've never seen before so crypto's been a fun space for us I really enjoy working in the crypto space and uh, overcoming using new technologies to overcome challenges that I've never seen before that up until recently didn't really exist all of these 
um, distributed systems at scale were something that didn't, it wasn't a challenge that I had encountered before. I don't think it's a challenge that most developers had, had, had encountered before. They might use their own distributed systems that they've built that are a small ecosystem that they maintain, but this large collection of distributed systems that we need to interact with with no control over it, no ability to change the way that the system is architected or the versions of code that everyone else is running. You know, that's a, a much more common challenge today than it was in the past. And it's been fun to play in this space. In terms of things that are a little more rote and annoying, Managing the legacy systems is the biggest problem. So we do still have some shared web servers, which are a bunch of websites on them that are being served out of PHP. Um, occasionally something breaks there. And I got to SSH into the server and start doing a bunch of Linux admin. Uh, that's no fun. Also, we have new tasks that arise from vendors we've integrated. So you know, a vendor, one of our vendors, every time they upgrade their software, we need to deploy new versions of our services that interact with them using their latest library. They disallow you to connect with older versions of the library, even one version back. So it requires that we have this lockstep approach to them upgrading on their side and us upgrading on our side for the individual services that wrap their APIs. Like, that's just annoying. I wish they had a better solution here. I wish we could come up with some solution that gave us the flexibility to not need to do that. And we're working on that on our side. So we have an indirection layer that represents their service as a whole. And then we maintain a map of what version individual environments are on. And we delegate to the underlying uh, services that are able to speak to those uh, particular versions of environments that have the right library in them. But we still have the problem of when new versions come out in general and getting those up before the back end has been upgraded. Sometimes they don't do a great job of communicating. So just dealing with all the logistics. So managing legacy systems or managing the types of systems that we have as legacy systems that a vendor is using that we need to interact with. But if it's in the new serverless architecture, it's usually a pleasure to work with. So that's okay. usually the challenge, yeah. Okay, that's great, that's great. So another question is about uh, the time management approach that uh, you use actually. You need, as a, as a CTO, you need to control many different things. And you know, uh, the time through the day is limited. So what's, what's your approach? How do you split your time between different areas? And uh, yeah. That's a, that's a tough one. So you know, I'm doing my best, but honestly, it's a lot of the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, whoever needs my help the most, that's where I jump. So often I'm on sales calls whenever those have been scheduled with large prospects who have very technically demanding implementations that they're inquiring about and they want to understand better what's happening there. Uh, similar updates to those clients after they are on board and we need to speak with their dev team to learn or to explain to them what it is we built and for them to learn how they're going to work with that software. So that's something that kind of just interrupts my day and I need to plan around it. Um, otherwise, when I do have control over my time, what I like to do is start my day by unblocking everything that came up over the evening. As I mentioned, we have basically a 24-hour development cycle going on now. We also have Sorry about this. Part of our team. No problem. 
we also have part of our team in the Philippines. So it really is becoming a full 24 hour cycle. And when I wake up, there's always a large group of Slack messages waiting for me across many channels, as well as a number of direct messages, and then also updates in Asana. So my first task is just work through that. Make sure that anyone that's waiting on me is unblocked and they can move fast. And as the team has grown, I'm trying to empower more people below me to act as the escalation path for inquiries that the more junior developers might have so that I stop bottlenecking those things. And after I've gotten through all that, um, usually the stand-up will happen right around the time that I'm finishing that up. So we'll do the stand-up. And then now I can jump on the most important development task that I'm going to pick up myself. And that will usually be either something related to one of the legacy systems, because I'm probably the guy that built that, or uh, testing out a new technology that we're looking to deploy more widely. So, you know, if we're looking to, when we first started looking at, at Cognito, um, I was working with my head of development to make sure that it was going to meet our needs. We had some calls with the AWS uh, professionals over there that are specifically dedicated. I think they're called solutions engineers. They're specifically dedicated to that product that helped us uh, validate some of our concerns and also uh, some of the workarounds for some of the shortcomings for that tool for our particular use case. Like we need to make sure that we can do a 2FA challenge at any time. If you're going to be withdrawing funds from the exchange, we want to hit you with a 2FA challenge. But their 2FA challenge only happens on login. So we need to come up with certain workflows, not invalidate their tokens, while also being able to run through a 2FA, to a 2FA challenge and know whether it succeeded or not. So those sorts of higher level research projects are something that I spend a lot of my time on. Um, but in terms of managing my time, it's really, I feel like other people are demanding my time more than I get to manage it. Whatever needs my attention is where I work first. And then when I have the freedom to manage my own time, I tend to work on the higher level tasks that will result in a lot of lower level tasks being generated for the rest of the team. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense, really. Thank you. So the very last question is about, uh, learning and starting uh, so you know to be updated on uh, the technologies about you know trends and management and uh, other, uh, many other things uh, you know um, you need to learn uh, but there are many different ways and uh, something works for somebody something not what's uh, so what's your uh, what's your uh, experience uh, so like do you read books? Do you listen to podcasts? Uh, maybe you speak to people. Maybe you have some mentors or not. So what's what 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 is your approach here? So that's also a very good question. Um, it's not easy to have a blanket solution that just learn you know works for learning in general. But I have found that. Over the course of my career, I've come across other developers that I highly respect, and often the fact that I respect them as a developer also means that we have a lot in common outside of our professional work as well, whether it's you know, liking video games or being interested in certain things that are happening in the news or having certain 
interesting political conversations with each other. It's just easy to build a friendship with other qualified developers that I come across throughout my career. So maintaining those friendships and not allowing them to break down as you move from role to role or people move from country to country. Unfortunately, most of my best friends are living abroad in other countries now. And you have to really put an effort to maintain those friendships. But it's important because you're not going to come across people of that caliber every day of your life. So that's something that I found to be very helpful. And often that takes the, the format of a debate where we're disagreeing about something and ultimately we were both a little wrong and a little right. And we learned something from that conversation. Um, and then beyond that, you know, there's the more traditional tools. And a lot of people like books. Books can be helpful when you are looking at a space that has been very well explored. Um, but for the newer technologies, they move so quickly that the books are going to be a little less relevant. You might find the occasional medium post or something like that that's very useful and it is uh, useful to read through those, but that's not a reliable source of new information. It's just something you might come across from Hacker News or something like that. What I find to be a very reliable way to see new concepts and the cutting edge of what people are doing is Okay, sorry. I'll be done in like five, 10 minutes. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. What I find is a very reliable way to follow new technologies and be introduced to new techniques that people are using is to subscribe on YouTube to conferences that I wish I could attend every year. So Strange Loop, for example, is a very good functional programming conference, something that I really enjoy looking at the highlights of. And then I also speak to my friends, some of whom might have attended that conference and ask them if they heard that any sessions were very good. And if so, I make sure that I watch those sessions. Um, JSConf, CSSConf, you know, a lot of programmers look down on CSS, like it's a technology they don't need to be very strong at and that the more junior developers will work on it. But understanding where that technology is going and how we can interface with it from you know, the newer JavaScript technologies that are coming down and what sort of pre-processing we should be running on the CSS to generate the code that ultimately gets delivered to the browser, like that's very important. So you know, different conferences. I also like security and being in the crypto space. Security is always a very important topic as a leader to be able to speak about to potential leads, but also in the design of the systems themselves. So Black Hat, DEF CON, things like that, great to follow. Um, but in general, those conferences are very, very useful. And then also the major technology companies themselves. The Amazon Web Services channel publishes a lot of great talks, everything from like AWS Reignite, as well as individual 20-minute primers on new technologies they just released, and they seem to release new technologies like every week. Um, Google has great channels, their Google Developers channel. They'll talk about updates to you know, Firebase and Stackdriver and all of their technologies from the front end through to their back end and the Google Cloud platform. Um, and Facebook developers, you know, those are all great channels. And I pick and choose. You know, you're obviously not going to watch everything. They tend to dump. So there will be 50 videos that are all an hour long. You're not going to sit down and watch 50 hours video. Um, in fact, you might not watch any of it. But you just scroll through, see if anything's useful, add it to a playlist. When you have some time, you watch. And the most important thing I find for using this technique is that when you're watching one of these videos, 
pop open the laptop and start using the technology hand in hand with what you're watching. Usually you can follow along. It's very rare that the, the video is so detail oriented that you need to put the computer away and just watch, um, but it'll start to pique your interest. You'll start getting interested in things. Play around with the technology at the same time because doing is the way that I always find that I learned the best. So you'll get a primer from what you're watching. If someone's talking about certain new ways to approach data types and um, you know, distributed systems or something like that, pop open an app you have that's pretty close to what they're working on and see if you can start transforming some of your code to match the models and the design uh, patterns that they're showing you in the video. And you might not get anywhere. You, this, definitely isn't going to become production code by the end of the talk, but you're going to learn much, much better than if you just sat there for an hour watching TV. At that point, you barely learn anything. So doing is definitely the best way to learn. And if you can work on something that's actually planned to get into production, then that's going to be by far the best way to learn because you actually need to solve the problems. You're not just playing around anymore. You're engineering and you're getting code into prod. So yeah, those those are some of the techniques I use, and they're mixed effectiveness. There's no perfect answer there, but that's been that's been working for me for the last couple of years.